John chapter 4, verse 1. Let us hear the, the word of God. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Let us pray and ask God's help. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the ways that it works, the ways that it challenges us, encourages us, convicts us. And Father, I pray that your word will do the work that you intended to do this morning, that you would use me in the preparation, the time of study and prayer to encourage those that may be weary to challenge those that may have walked in haughty, prideful, thinking they have no need for your grace. Father, we need your help, so we ask what we know not you would teach us, and what we are not you would make us, and what we have not you would give us by your grace, for your glory. In Christ's name, God's people said, amen. There are some things in life that we come to expect as we grow and learn more about the world around us. For example, in Lynchburg, Virginia, I can expect that when LU classes are in session, Ward's Road is going to be a mess, right? Avoid it. Stay away. It's going to be packed full. Another thing I've come to expect in Lynchburg is that when I go to Chick-fil-A, it's going to be delicious. And I'm likely going to hear the famous phrase, my pleasure. On the contrary, 
There are many things in life that happen that we don't expect. Things that come to us that are very unexpected. Sometimes the unexpected things are really bad. An unexpected death in the family. Unexpected health issues. Unexpected financial crisis. But there are unexpected situations that are good and bring joy. Maybe an unexpected guest that stops by your house. I guess that could be good or bad. An unexpected gift from someone. An unexpected uh, encounter with the old friend that you haven't seen in years that you run into while you're out. You get the picture. We can all agree that there are things in this life that are expected and things that are unexpected. And what we have before us today is an encounter that was highly unexpected by this Samaritan woman. This well-known encounter was one that transformed her life forever. You could say it was a divine encounter of eternal significance. As we look at these verses before us, I have four observations I want us to consider as we look at this familiar story. I give us these four headings, and you can write them down if you're taking notes. First, we will see the intentionality of Jesus. The intentionality of Jesus. Second, we will see the bold audacity of Jesus. The bold audacity of Jesus. Third, we will see Jesus' willingness to save. He's willing and eager to save. Fourth, we will, we will see the eternal supremacy of Jesus Christ. The eternal supremacy. Let's look at verses 1 through 6 as we first see the intentionality of Jesus in this just unexpected encounter that's before us. Verse 1 reads, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, and we get this parenthetical statement here, right? Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Jacob. And then verse 6, we read, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So here we get the, the setting of this divine encounter. And John provides us here with a lot of detail, which is helping his reader to see that this is, this is real people. This is a real place. These are real events that happened. See, the Bible isn't some fairy tale. Uh, it isn't a once upon a time and an, uh, an unknown man in an unknown land did something. This is fact, historical fact. It's stuff that really happened. 
And we will take more time here as we look at this setting because it's going to help to, to kind of bring into focus the rest of the story. And first what we see here is that Jesus has decided to move from Judea to Galilee. And we're told that the reason is that the Pharisees have heard that Jesus is having an impact on people. And his impact is starting to supersede that of John the Baptist. If you remember a few weeks ago, we looked at John 3, 22 through 30. Uh, we saw that beginning conflict over which baptism was greater. You all remember that? Yep, shake your head if you remember that story. There was a conflict going on. It was a, a, a whose baptism is greater, John? Remember, Jesus didn't baptize anyone himself. Still, the idea was, is it, is it you, John the Baptist, or, or is it Jesus? Like, Who's greater? You're doing the same thing. John the Baptist proceeds to make the humble statement that we're all very familiar with probably. He must increase, but I must decrease. Right? Speaking of Jesus. So John the Baptist has said, it, it isn't about me. It's not about what I can do. It's all about Jesus. I've come to proclaim Jesus. And the Pharisees, they don't like John the Baptist, right? And they especially don't like Jesus because John the Baptist is claiming that Jesus is the promised Messiah. They don't get it. They don't like it. So now Jesus has decided the time has come to move his ministry north to Galilee. The most probable reason for this is because the hostility and opposition of the Pharisees is growing, right? Jesus being God, he knows this, and he knows that his time to die has not arrived. It's not here. My time has not come. There's ministry to be done. So at this point, this point of his life, he avoids the unnecessary attention and continues his earthly mission without the distraction of these hostile Pharisees. And we read that on his way to Galilee, it says, he had to pass through Samaria. Now the Jews weren't too fond of Samaria or anything in it. There's a long history between the Jews and the Samaritans. A quick history lesson for us, right? Uh, around 930 B.C., if you remember, uh, Israel split into two kingdoms. We had the, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judea. And then in 722 B.C., the Syrians invaded the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, when they did this, they, they then named the new capital city Samaria. They kicked out all the prominent Israelites, all the priests, the prophets, you name it, anyone who was anyone, they, they kicked them out. They said, we're going to get you out of here. We don't want any influence from anything that you have. They, they, they sent them into exile. Uh, D.A. Carson sums it up well in this kind of historical summary of these events. He says, after the Assyrians captured Samaria in 722 B.C., they deported all the Israelites of substance and settled the land with foreigners who then intermarried with the surviving Israelites. 
and adhere to some form of their ancient religion. You can read about that account in 2 Kings 17 through 18 if you want to read that later. He goes on to say after the exile, okay, this is important, Jews returning to their homeland. So when they were allowed back in here, the remains of the southern kingdom viewed the Samaritans not only as the children of political rebels, but as racial half-breeds whose religion was tainted by various unacceptable elements, end quote. So the Samaritans weren't the most popular amongst the Jews. They were considered traitors. They were considered unwanted outcasts, pagans who did not worship the true God. Now, there are disagreements about what is meant by the phrase, he had to pass through Samaria, because it's very specific there. It says he had to do it. Some say it has a geographical meaning, right? Had to pass because there was no other way. Others suggest it was a divine appointment. Had to pass through because he had a providential meeting with this woman. I, for one, would agree with the latter. I would say that the text says he had to pass because there was a divine appointment. See, there was other ways to get to Galilee. You didn't have to go through Samaria. Now, many Jews did take the shorter route through Samaria, but history tells us that many didn't. They took the longer route to avoid Samaria altogether. They didn't want to go near it. They said, we don't even want to like just risk becoming unclean by mingling with these people. We're going to take the longer, harder way. So I would say it, it wouldn't really be exactly right to say he had to go through it geographically because there were other routes. Regardless of what he had to pass means, we do see something here that would have been very unusual for the Jews that did actually pass through Samaria on the way to Galilee. We read, So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That would, the sixth hour would be about noon. So Jesus is tired. He's weary from this journey that he is on. I mean, here we see the, the beautiful humanity of our Savior. He had a body just like us. He can relate to the things that we go through. He got tired. He was weary from this journey that he was on. And he stops by the well. We read later that the disciples went to buy food there. So Jesus is there at the well. He's by himself. And the Jews that did take the journey through Samaria, they, they wouldn't typically stop and buy food there either. They didn't want anything to do with what was going on in Samaria. If they went through, they, like I said, they, they, 
they beelined, they went through as fast as they could. But here, Jesus Christ intentionally posts up at this well while sending his disciples to get food in a place that Jews avoided because they hated the people that lived there. Brothers and sisters, this is no accident. This is not a circumstance of chance. Jesus is divinely intentional as he tactfully prepares to encounter someone that he has entered the world to save. Listen to the words of our Savior in Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. We've talked about this before. Jesus came on a mission. He, He came on purpose, with intentionality. And brothers and sisters, what we see here is intentional seeking. I want you to pause for a few seconds here and just think about your own story of salvation. And if you were saved, I want you to just think of the ways that God was intentional with you. Uh, Maybe it was a, a sermon that you were part of. That you heard the gospel preached in a way that the Lord worked and changed your heart. Uh, Maybe it was an encounter with someone that evangelized to you. Maybe it was something that happened in your home that you were then placed in a, a wonderful household of faith. That God would be so gracious to give you that blessing. I mean, there are countless ways that we as Christians can look back and see the intentionality of Jesus in our own lives. And brothers and sisters, that is only to the praise of God. Amen? So we see this divine intentionality. As Jesus is posted up at this well, and he doesn't stop there, right? We then see the bold audacity of Jesus in our Second observation in verses 7 through 9. We read, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So let's stop there. This, this woman, she, she goes to the well. This is a common practice for women to do in these times. But what was uncommon was the fact that she was there alone. It was also uncommon that she would be there at noon, which would have been probably the hottest portion of the day. See, the practice of gathering water from the well was usually done in the morning or evening, right? It was a lot cooler. And the women of the community usually went at the same time. They would use this as a time to socialize and just kind of do it together. Uh, Ladies, we should learn from this, right? Doing things together in community an important thing. But here this Samaritan woman shows up alone. She's by herself. She's at the hottest point of the day. We're not going to get there today, but if we look down at verse 18, we probably get a little bit of a, a, a clue as to why she chose to go there alone. It says, This is, remember, Jesus, he's going to really confront her about her sin. And he tells her in verse 18, you can uh, look down a few verses, and it says, For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have 
is not your husband. So essentially what we see here is that she's an adulterer. She's promiscuous. She's moving from one man to another, and then the the one that she's with now is not even her husband. She's living with this man and engaging with this man in ways that are reserved for marriage only. She says, I'm going to go to the well alone. I'm going to go when no one else will be there. Now, this is a Now, they didn't have Facebook and Twitter and all the modern technologies of spreading everyone's business that we have today. But she was likely well-known. She was likely well-known in this town. She was an outcast because of her immorality. So she's probably going to the well at this time because chances are slim that she would run into other women. They probably saw her coming, and here she comes again. Oh, look at her, right? Imagine the whispers, gossip, the shame, the guilt. But Jesus here, he takes advantage of this strange situation, and he asks a simple request. He says, give me a drink of water. I'm thirsty. I'm weary. I'm tired. And as I mentioned, John gives us this parenthetical statement as to why Jesus didn't ask his disciples. That would have been very common for a rabbi to say, hey, disciples, I've been teaching. I'm tired. I'm weary. I'm leading you. So would you get me some water? But guess what? The intentionality of Jesus shows that they're not there. He sent them all away. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then we, we kind of get even, John's making it very clear to us here, right? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She's caught off guard. What are you doing? Why are you asking me for water? This phrase, the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, is better translated, they don't use the same stuff. Or even simpler, they don't use the same water vessels. There was no intermingling with things. You don't drink from the same glass. So this woman is shocked. That Jesus Christ, a Jew, would ask her for a drink. She knows the hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. And she knows that a Jewish rabbi should especially refrain from talking to a Samaritan woman. Brothers and sisters, this is unheard of. This is scandalous, even. It goes against everything culture promoted and everything that she knew. But look at our Savior's audacity. He isn't worried about what people think or what they will say. He goes against the cultural norms to go after his people. He transcends all barriers 
to engage this woman with a simple but audacious request. Give me some water. I'm thirsty. And look, she doesn't know anything about Jesus at this point. She hasn't heard the stories of the miracles. She's totally clueless to who this man is. She's probably identified Jesus as a Jew because of his clothing. Uh, They would have tassels and different uh, assortments on their clothing that would identify them as Jews to kind of separate them from others. She doesn't know who this person that she's talking to is. But brothers and sisters, he knows her. Nothing will stand in the way of getting to her. He's not letting anything stop him. And then we see the beautiful willingness to save. In verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. So Jesus makes it clear here. I mean, he tells her, you know what? You should ask me for a drink. Because I have something that you desperately need. Living water. Notice the language here. He says, if you would have asked. I would have given. He says, just ask. Over and over again, we've been reminded of the simplicity of faith in Christ. It isn't a long list of demands. Believe in the name of the Lord and ye shall be saved. Ask and it shall be given. Knock and the door shall be opened. Jesus speaks of two very important things here. He says, one, the gift of God. And then he says, the living water. The gift of God means God's gift of grace in Jesus Christ being present in the earth. He's he's come to bring salvation. The same language is used by Paul in Romans 5.15. He says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, speaking of Adam here, remember we've all inherited our sin nature. We're all guilty of sin because of Adam. We're all now under the righteous and just penalty, wrath, condemnation of God. When we are apart from Christ, naturally, that's how we enter But then Paul goes on and he says, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The free gift of grace. Jesus says here, I am the gift of God who has come to bring living water to all who ask. It is me. I'm here. What is this living water? Well, we all know that water is essential to just life, right? I mean, in our 
primitive, uh, substantial sense. We, we need water to live. So very simply put, Jesus uses this physical illustration to point this woman to her need for salvation. Think back to this conversation with Nicodemus. He uses the common physical illustration of a birth. Remember, he says, uh, you must be born again. Here, he's by Jacob's well, which she is using to draw water, and he tactfully connects himself to the situation at hand. I mean, it's quite impressive the way that Jesus uh, used this scenario and this situation. On a deeper theological note here, the term living water is connected to the Old Testament, where God refers to himself as the fountain or the source of living water. One place that this is found is in Jeremiah 2.13. You can write that down, look it up later. I'll read it for us. But the prophet writes here, he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. They've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In other words, what he's saying here is they've rejected the fresh, life-giving water of God for cheap imitations that are broken. Romans 1, right? They've exchanged the glory of God for the, the creator, for creation. We exchange it all the time. This is what... Jesus is offering this woman. He's saying, I've got living water for you. I have salvation. He says, this is what you need. This is the the most important thing in your life. He says, "If if you knew who I was, you would ask me. For living water. He says, I, I have it. I want to give it to you. Just ask me. I mean, church, the grace of God is so evident here. I mean, we see this free gift of salvation so clearly. Jesus is extending salvation. I mean, he, he wants to save. Brothers and sisters, this is the case for us that are saved, right? I mean, he didn't begrudgingly save you. He's not disappointed that he saved you, no matter what you are going through now. He's not some tyrant just waiting for you to mess up to just toss you out of the kingdom. He loves you. He died for you. He gave his life so that you can have life eternal. Repent, turn back to him. But at this point, this woman is spiritually blind. I mean, she has no idea what Jesus is talking about. She's still just like, like, what is this dude saying? So she then makes this comparison, right? Jesus and Jacob, all right, now 
who's greater. We see this comparison of Jesus and some person that was held in high esteem. He says, are you really better than Jacob? Then our final observation gives us the resounding answer. Yes. He says, I am much greater. I am far superior than Jacob. Here we see the eternal supremacy of Jesus as we look at the final portion of our text today. Verse 11 says, the woman said to him, sir, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Stop there. He, she is just thinking strictly physical. She actually gets a little sarcastic with Jesus and says, like, hey, where are you going to get this water you speak of? You know, she, she knows what has to take place in order to, to draw water because she does it all the time. She's like, hey, uh, you don't have a bucket. And the well is really deep. Uh, historians would say that this well is still uh, about 100 or so feet deep. It may have been even deeper during that time. So our snarkiness is kind of relative to the situation, right? She's like, uh, you're talking about you've got something, but you don't got nothing. You, you can't get to the water. Once again, think back to Nicodemus, right? We see this uh, parallel uh, just encounters, these, these two, the dichotomy here of uh, Nicodemus, who was this learned Jew who just still had, had no idea. And here's this adulterous woman who has no idea, spiritually blind here. What did he tell Nicodemus? You must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, all right, I need to find a womb to climb back into, right? Am I going to go back into my mother's womb? Because that's what being born again means to me. Here she is thinking physical. She's like, how am I going to, how are you going to get me some water when you don't have a bucket? It's deep. You don't have a rope. Then she proceeds to ask him, like, are you, you better than the patriarch Jacob who gave us this well in the first place? Are you better than him? And then Jesus shows his supremacy in his ability to provide something that a physical well and a patriarch could never provide. Eternal life. Jesus said to her in verse 13, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. He says, this water right here, you're going to be thirsty. But whoever, look at the contrast here. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never. If you have your Bible, underline that, circle that. Will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus answers her question here with great simplicity and profundity. 
He gives her the truth about the physical water that Jacob provided by reminding her, hey, guess what? You're going to be thirsty again. You didn't just do this one time. This isn't the last time. You're going to have to keep coming back. You will be thirsty again. This water does not satisfy forever. Brothers and sisters, you can insert anything you want here. The things of this world will not satisfy eternally. Money, jobs, relationships, popularity, success, they are all fleeting. They fail to fully satisfy. You have to keep coming back for more. You have to keep chasing the American dream if that's your goal. Because guess what? You never achieve it. The goalpost continues to move. Jesus says the the water that I'm offering is eternal. He says it's going to be a, a, a spring welling up to eternal life. He says those who drink will never be thirsty because, listen, it's not a thirst for natural water that you are really in need of. It's a thirst for God himself. And it is only by God's power that he can quench this thirst. Again, we see some Old Testament promises here. Isaiah 12, 1 through 3, writing about the day of God's salvation. He says in verses 1 through 3, You will say in that day, speaking ahead, speaking of of, of prophecy here, He says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. And then verse three, with joy you will draw from the wells of salvation. The wells of salvation. This is what Jesus is offering here. He says, yes, I'm greater than Jacob. I'm far superior than this person because I offer you life eternal. I offer life everlasting. Surely, we will still get physically thirsty, thirsty right now. We will have spiritually dry spells. There will be times where we we feel like the the well is a little far off, right? And maybe our bucket isn't, we don't have it. We don't have a rope that is long enough to reach the well. But what we see here is an offer to enter into the everlasting covenant with God. 
who will always be with us and provide for us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Concerning this passage, Matthew Poole writes, he says, He who receiveth the Holy Spirit and the grace thereof, though he will be daily saying, Give, give, and continually desiring further supplies of grace, yet he shall never wholly want. Never want any good thing that shall be needful for him. The seed of God shall abide in him, and his water shall be in him a spring, supplying him until he comes to heaven. End quote. See, Christians have accessibility to the well that is always present, and it doesn't need a rope or a bucket to access. We have the Spirit of God in us. The Holy Spirit alive and working in us, providing what we need. Uh, Paul tells uh, the Romans, like, even when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit intercedes for us, praying for us, interpreting our groanings, And praying what we really need. Jesus tells this woman that although she came to get physical water, what she needs is the living water that he is offering to her. But we see, and we're going to end up stopping here today, but we see that she's still thinking in physical terms. Look at verse 15. The woman said to him, well, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This is so familiar, isn't it? There's so many people that think only of salvation in a what's in it for me physically frame of mind. This is the bedrock of the prosperity gospel. Godliness as a means of material gain. Like, like what can I get out of this, Jesus? Like, how are you going to help my, my physical situation? If I say yes to Jesus, will I get physical healing? If I say yes to Jesus, will I get all the health, all the wealth, all the things that, that my flesh desires? Give me the water so I don't have to keep coming back. I don't want to have to keep coming back to the well. It's, it's inconveniencing me. It's hard work. So many are like this. Now, praise be to God. We see next week, we will, Lord willing, that she doesn't stay like this. But I want to leave us with just kind of a, a heavy reminder probably for us as we close our time. First and foremost, whether it be a law-abiding Pharisee like Nicodemus or an adulterer like the woman of Samaria, it doesn't matter. God is still offering salvation to those who would ask Jesus for living water. It doesn't matter. 
Maybe you fit that category today. And it is God's kindness and his love for you that you would even be here to hear these words and this offer of salvation, the intentionality that Jesus would use to bring you here this morning is all a testament of his grace. If you are saved, I want us just to remember that each of us were once like this. We were either attempting moralism like Nicodemus, like we, we just figured if we just went to enough church services, if we, we gave enough money here and there, if we did enough good things, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not as bad as these people. God's got to like me. He, he, he's got to give me salvation, right? Or we were like the adulterous woman. We were like the woman of Samaria who just blatantly sinned and lived in sin. And we tried to modify our life to hide our sin, to avoid confrontation for our sin. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done. Rest in the grace of our Savior today. He saved you. He loves you. He intentionally sought you. If you're continuing to live in sin, repent, turn away. If you don't know, I want to give us a little just application point, kind of a cultural application point. If you don't know, it's Pride Month, right? And Pride Month is quite literally a month where sinners take pride in sinful behavior, right? Where they flaunt deviant sexual sin. But as angry, as upset, as frustrated as we might get about this in our flesh, we must remember that salvation is still available to all who call upon Jesus. Every single person. And my prayer is that we would be a church that seek to live with intentionality. Like we, we would engage the culture around us. We wouldn't shift away and hide out in our little Christian bubbles. See, what we do on Sundays, we gather as a covenant reminder. A reminder of what God has done for us. And then in turn, we scatter as the church throughout the week wherever we are placed in this season. And we engage with those around us. We're intentional with those around us. And may we be a people that have just bold audacity. Bold audacity to not point to our holiness, but to point to his holiness and his willingness to save. And let's ask God to put people in our path that are unexpecting and use these cultural moments to point people to the eternal supremacy of a God who was willing to save those that would call upon him. May we thank God for our divine encounter that rescued us from the ruins of sin as we point others to the one true God 
who is able to provide living water. I'm resting in that fact today. There's a well that I can always run to that never dries up, and it's found in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray and I ask, God, that you would help us. You would help us to be intentional. You would help us to be audacious in our proclamation. Give us boldness, Lord. As we will see next week, you weren't afraid to confront sin. But you were quick to offer forgiveness if one would repent and turn to you. So, Lord, my prayer today is that if this space that have not placed their faith in you, that you would soften their hearts, that you would grant them salvation in this moment. Lord, would you just help us, God, to live as ambassadors for Jesus as we encounter the world around us. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.